Derrida, like all things, um, doesn't stay read. So the moment at which you are reading it, at which you're encountering the um, complexity and the turns of the text, that's the education. That's Juliet Fleming, professor of English at New York University and author most recently of Cultural Graphology, writing after Derrida, out from the University of Chicago Press. Juliet Fleming is, I'd imagine she'd accept this term, Juliet Fleming is a Derridian. That's to say she's a reader and interpreter of Jacques Derrida and a practitioner of Derrida's famous post-structuralist method of criticism, deconstruction. For as long as I've, well, as long as I've studied literature and literary theory, I'm doing grad work now at NYU, but I'm talking even at my little Catholic high school in Michigan, deconstruction has always been a kind of um, specter. It's always looming somewhere just out of sight, evading my vision and my grasp, and I'd say most other people's vision and grasp. This elusiveness lends itself to the mystique and ultimate appeal of deconstruction for some people, maybe, but for others, it fills them with a kind of indignation. They sit down to read Derrida, they find his prose difficult, perhaps unintelligible, and they dismiss him as an obscurantist, even a charlatan. Now, I've come to a different conclusion about Derrida. I found that after I've read him, or after I've been made to read him by Juliet Fleming most recently, I walk away with a deeper and more exacting sense of how to read a text closely, so closely that you bump up against and can start to chart the limits of its language and of language generally. The last few times I went back home to Michigan, I found myself in a surprising amount of conversations in which somehow or other I've been asked to sort of defend Derrida, um, defend him, but also defend post-structuralism and French theory generally. I mentioned that these conversations happen often in Michigan because I kind of suspect that there's an element of regional tension in these conversations. My fellow Midwesterners discovering the extent to which a defector to the East Coast has assumed the affectations of the city. Um, maybe I have, I don't know. I brought up these situations to Juliet Fleming to start our conversation, and I ask her how she defends Derrida when she's called upon to do it. You'll hear her response. After that, you'll hear Juliet describe the use and importance of Derrida's thought generally. We talk about his politics, as well as his contemporary followers and interpreters, and also we talk about his legacy. As you'll notice, though, we had just a bit of trouble with the mics, which is, of course, my fault. You'll hear a slight difference in the sound of Juliet's mic and mine, but we've tweaked the audio so that both Juliet's and my voice come through clearly on the recording. All right, on to the episode. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan. This is Common Ground. The uh, tendency of critics of Derrida is to say, well, if I don't understand him on a first reading, it's because he's unintelligible. And this is somehow taken to be a sign of his um, deliberate obscurantism. Mm. Uh, and so when I'm asked to defend him, I, I want to, but I have trouble being clear in my argumentation. And when the critics are talking with me, they tend to take my lack of clarity mm. as a sign of the uselessness of Derrida's thought. Hmm. Uh, and so I'm al I always leave the rhetorical situation feeling um, trumped and thus, uh, <laughs> thus, thus um, um, frustrated. Uh, and so I'm just wondering, 
when you're in such situations, when you're at a cocktail party, say, and you're, someone makes some easy remark about postmodernism or a Derrida, and as the, as the resident Derrida scholar, you're called upon, essentially, to defend him. What do you find yourself saying, typically? The first thing to say is about reading, um, Joe, because I'm not sure what it means to have read Derrida. And when I teach students, um, I will always ask them, you know, if they've read some Derrida, and some put up their hands and some don't. And um, then I will, you know, um, ask them to tell me what they've read and what they remember from it. And the uh, they can usually um, say a few things, but but they will never be able to recap Derrida's argument. And indeed, you know, that's the situation you're in, and that's the situation I would be in too, because um, Derrida like all things, um, doesn't stay read. It's um, one of those things that, you know, one reads and reads and reads again. There's a, this Derrida's own argument, there's a time of reading. So the moment at which you are reading it, at which you're encountering the um, complexity and the turns of the text, that's the education. And there's um, notoriously with Derrida, but this would be true for some other readers, like Nietzsche perhaps too, um, Heidegger might be another, there's no takeaway that you can easily just pocket and carry off. And um, this can be extremely intimidating for people who are going at a humanities education as if it were something else. You know, a humanities education is really about generating the skills of close reading, close thinking, you know, a, a, a thoughtful responsibility vis-a-vis the text and its occurrence and its consequences. And so, you know, none of that is easily taken away, except, except as, a, as an improved strength, really. But so when, when I mean, I, I get this all the time, too. I'm sure it's, uh, it may not be regional-specific. <laughs> um, and uh, and um, particularly, I, actually, I, not so much at NYU, um, where I think people are perhaps reluctant to expose the fact they don't know Derrida. There's this assumption one ought to know it, whatever that would mean. Um, but uh, another university I'm very familiar with, um, which is Yale, where Derrida, of course, was once very um, warmly received, particularly in the English department. Um, but now, if you go there, and, and um, there's a, a residual hysteria, I would say. It's more than a resistance. It's a hysteria to, to what Derrida may have represented. And so I do get that um, sort of, what do you work on? I work on Derrida. Um, recoil. Um, that, that you know, people believe they know it's rubbish, or they they, or at least it is so obscure that it could not be worth their while. That's interesting that you point out that it's probably not regional. I think my assumption, perhaps I should broaden it. Um, I was talking with uh, um, a conservative historian of philosophy at a at a, at a small college called St. John's College. Um, uh-huh. I think in Virginia, I can't remember. No, it's in Annapolis, Maryland, right near the Naval Academy. And she used a phrase that was sort of fascinating and funny, admittedly. She she said, or she accused Derrida and Derridians, perhaps, as, as suffering from what she called the French disease of sophisticated unintelligibility. Uh-huh. And in that, I think bracketing the unintelligibility bit, like what we can say about the fact that 
reading Derrida is difficult and what we can take from that, the practice of reading Derrida. And perhaps, as you suggested, one, that's one of the points of, of reading Derrida is the difficulty itself. But on, on the other hand, the fact that she called attention to his being French and to his being taken as sophisticated huh. is interesting. Um, because I, I, I associated that with regionalism because, of course, people in the Midwest often associate people on the East Coast with being sophisticated and with having, uh, uh, having at their fingertips not just American culture, but also French and European culture. I guess I'm wondering if, if you're encountering arguments in the academy among academics against Derrida, and um, you're encountering people who seem to assume without perhaps having read him or having read him deeply that he's unintelligible or that it's rubbish. What do you think are the assumptions that they have about his writing that makes it rubbish? Yeah, well, that's interesting because I used to teach at Cambridge, and of course, um, Cambridge is the is the place where, when Derrida was going to be offered an honorary degree, um, members of the English faculty rose up um, and and garnered the support of the philosophy department to argue that Derrida was a charlatan, and um, in fact, he of course was um, granted his degree, but it, it it caused a tremendous rift, and it did produce a sort of set of fairly um, clear lines between what people knew and what they didn't know and what people were prepared to um, to, to think and not. But so, I mean, one of the things you, you raise is interesting, Joe, because um, the question of, you know, what French... Uh, one issue is why, why Derrida? Why is it Derrida who's the straw guy for, for all of this, the, the straw man for all this? And we, we, we could come back to that. Um, but the other is this question of the French and um, and the way in which um, what the Anglo-American Academy understands about French thinking and what it doesn't understand about French thinking. So within, as I understand it anyway, within a French philosophical tradition, um, certain gestures such as meditating very hard about the etymology or indeed the sort of semantic field of a word um, which to an Anglo-American ear sounds like really callow punning <laughs> and of no possible um, intellectual respectability. Um, in, in, in France, it's, it's, it's a call to thinking. It's, a, it's just a prompt. It's like a sort of discovery of, of you know, a piece of grit in the oyster that can, can switch your thought and, and, it, and, and like a metaphor, you know, you're, you're using a metaphor, why does it clarify what you're trying to think? It clarifies what you're trying to think because it fits and because it doesn't fit the situation. So, you know, some, some of those word plays that Derrida engages in, um, you know, when you're following him, you can see he's using them to sort of switch between discourses to, to open the field to import new thought. Um, but but if you're um, you know reading this in translation, particularly these are notoriously difficult things to translate. I mean, sometimes they're better in translation, um, but but uh, but sometimes the point gets lost. So I th I think that's one of the um, one of the things within the academy that make it easy for superficially for for people to to say, well, Derrida is just a, a you know a, a player with words. Um, but the other thing is is a uh, more consequential, really, and it's, uh, it goes to a very, very common misunderstanding of Derrida and, and what he's arguing, which is what language is and what it does. 
And um, Derrida's position here is that we, you and I, and everybody who thinks they, that Derrida is um, of no interest, are metaphysicians. We believe at some level that there is reality and it's over there and it, all we have to access it or point at it are words, is our language. And unfortunately, our language is not adequate to grasp the full um, richness of, of the present moment. That is metaphysics. That is exactly what Derrida is writing against. But he is usually held to be arguing that and therefore saying it's all words. You know, words are um, their own game. They, um, and, and, uh, and this is sometimes ignorantly used to adduce Derrida's own political irresponsibility. In fact, Derrida is just trying to point out the way in which we, um, in our understanding of language as being that which tries to net or catch or point or gesture towards presence, um, have misunderstood the nature of reality itself and, and of language. Because of course, language doesn't stand outside reality. It is you know, absolutely part of it. And it's not like it's a language is an expressive technology that is different from, from life itself as it, as it is lived. So that's the, um, that's the main misunderstanding. And it's absolutely everywhere in the obituaries for Derrida that were um, you know, scandalously ignorant as well as hostile. Why one would write a hostile um, obituary, I, I can't think. There was a lot of crowing at his death, about, well, a lot of jokes about whether we can really know whether he died, because oh. whether the things about <laughs> the reality of death, that's, I mean, well, okay, talking about misunderstandings, I, I'll, I'll bring up the political question um, that, that, you just, that you just raised kind of as an aside, mm -hmm. um, people misunderstanding his position on the left or per, what, take, they, they take it as an anti-realist and thus in a, in a deep sense sort of unpolitical stance. Yes. Or by being ostensibly unpolitical, they take it as accidentally reactionary. I mean, it's partly because, you know, Derrida it finds himself in his, uh, you know, mid-career. He's teaching in France, and he's got Althusser as one of his colleagues, and Foucault as another. Um, Lévi-Strauss is in Paris. Um, and... Uh, he has a very different outsider status than they do. He, um, as you know, grew up in Algeria and um, didn't. His high school was was closed by the Vichy government, and um, so when he arrived in Paris, he had a rough time. He was rather like an MA student, I think. He was like, you know, he'd like just come slightly elliptically to to the um, epicenter of French intellectual power, and so I, I imagine I don't know anything about this really, but I imagine that um, he had his own reasons for. Um, a slightly different politics. I mean, certainly always on the left, certainly um, a, a sympathizer um, of, of, of students in, in 1968, but not the kind of card-carrying leftist, perhaps, of Althusser or, mm. or even of Foucault. So um, they, uh, it's really hard to um, read them now without being struck by the similarities of, of the engagement that they were, they, were, they were sharing. They have much more in common than they than they have not in common. But uh, I think that it was probably the case that uh, Derrida was accused of being um, less activist than, oh, I see. say, Althusser or, or, or Foucault, certainly. But your, your question was more about um, the, the accusation 
perhaps it's, perhaps it's more about this the accusation leveled against Derrida that he's his you know that deconstruction mm -hmm. is is a, is a form of quietism because it's so rarefied and so intellectualized and it can't actually get any traction on the real world and then you add into this the misunderstanding that Derrida is actually arguing that language has no real traction in the world and you've got this kind of proposition that um, deconstruction is 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 simply a, a word game for for the elite i mean derrida is usually argued to have had a sort of political turn when he started um, writing about marx and um and he himself i think um would would uh, not have felt that necessarily um and and i i tend to work on his earlier stuff in any case and um it's it's uh, the politics is always already there and I mean, this, you know, who, who is who is to call other people's politics, really? But but one of the reasons that Derrida um, might not be a um, a banner deconstruction would be a banner for for a left politics um, is the same reason it wouldn't be a banner for um, you know a undergraduate theory class, which is that there's no. It, it's so careful. It's so thoughtful. It's so engaged with the details of the case that um, there's no easy solution. So that, um, you know, this question, the political turn is said to have involved Derrida's coming to think about questions of responsibility. Um, but questions of responsibility are always already there from you know, the absolute moment one starts thinking. And um, for Derrida, I think the, the, the problem is going to be that there is no responsibility to one thing, you and I were just talking about this actually, um, without irresponsibility in another, you know, in the neighboring territory. That again, um, you know, can lead to, to an um, accusation which is, should really be an observation about um, the particular function, political functions that Derrida's writing can be asked to perform and those that it, it's not suited to. How how did you start reading Derrida? I guess, when did you start reading Derrida? Was it in grad school? <laughs> um, I can't actually remember. I think it must have been, because I was an undergraduate at Cambridge, and I'm absolutely sure that we did not. Um, um, we read Roland Barthes, who is the sort of, you know, poor Roland Barthes. I mean, he was, he was thinking so um, energetically and brilliantly um, and right at that moment emerged on one side of him Foucault and on the other side um, Derrida and um, sort of swamped his more frail bark. I, I think that that is the case. And 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 but it's always um, people start theory. I think as undergraduates they can they can um, easily be brought to enjoy Roland Barthes. So I, I probably did read some Bart as a as an undergraduate. But um, I was. Uh, I went to Cambridge, um, it was my second job, and um, where I had been an undergraduate, but I got my PhD here and taught here, and then I went back. Um, and uh, I think I realized there was nobody teaching Derrida. And we started, we had a reading group. Actually, I do remember this, coming back, we read Grammatology, and um, it sort of took on a life of its own. And, uh, you know, just whoever wanted to come to it from all disciplines at Cambridge. We, uh, they were undergraduates. And um, so I, I did that for a few years, actually. We just kept reading Grammatology. When you were doing your work in, in, in the reading group and when you went, you went, you did your PhD at Penn, Yes, correct? I did. Um, that was... Uh, that would have been around the time of the theory wars. It, it was, it was the so-called theory wars. Yeah, in the 80s, yes. What was it like to become a 
become an out and out Derrida scholar during the theory wars because there there would have surely been a kind of um, is that a meaningful question too? I guess I wonder if at, at Penn it would have that would have been seen as a political statement or an intellectual statement independent of your specific specialization. Yes, I mean I don't think I was a. Um I was not a Derridian in graduate school. Um, I took a rather baffling course in complete, I remember, <laughs> actually, um, with a rather eminent um, theorist and didn't understand any of it. Yeah, I don't know. So, so I wasn't aware of being um, part of, a, of, a, of, a, of, of that conversation, although I do remember that, that I was sometimes classified as a theorist. I mean, I suppose this is why to some extent, it takes me by surprise because we can all read um, whatever we want to read, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you are a, an X or a Y, and um, you can, you know, take these things or leave them. And the the sort of fear that theory inspires is as if it was absolutely. Because um, what does it mean? I mean, we were just thinking about this in relation to the undergraduate curriculum here. Um, Theory, you know, could mean French theory, but it could also mean, you know, any kind of methodological um, self-consciousness about um, the discipline, its history, its protocols, you know, how one would broaden the um, the uh, understanding of that, that there is no reading of literature without a theory behind it. So um, theory, theory can be anything that is sort of bringing those um, questions to informed attention. What do you then? What do you make of if theory is just one? If if it's one approach to literature among many, it's a, it's something that you can take or leave necessarily. It could be very helpful to your thinking. It could be helpful to your criticism. What do you make of the very um, passionate response that some people have to theory, either for or against? I, I mentioned the so-called hoax, yeah. which happened here at NYU, um, but I, but also. Um, there for a while there was that I can't remember which journal it was, but the journal that ran the the bad writing contest. I remember there was um, someone took I, I, the journal took a big passage of Judith Butler, and used it as an example of how bad, in their view, academic writing had become. Uh, if 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 theory is just one, if if theory is just something that we can take or leave, how do you account for the very strong reaction that some people had to it? Yes. Well, you may be asking the wrong person. <laughs> um, I, mean, I think there's several things to say there. One is that, you know, we all have different skills, and some of us are um, better writers than others. And that is the case whether you're, you know, a old-style bibliographer or whether you're a new critic or whether you're a, um, a theorist. So, um, you know, Derrida is actually an unbelievably good writer. Um, uh, but it, but it does take um, some some skill and patience as it as it does to read any you know wonderfully complex provocative piece of literature. Um, so the bad writing, I think, I mean there is a lot of it around. It, it is the case that um, I mean one would want to distinguish Derrida himself from the um, the school of Derrida, the the Yale school of criticism. Um, which again, I mean, produced absolutely fantastic readings um, of all kinds of things, and some less good, like like any any school of thinking does. Why does it attract such opprobrium? Um, I think it is because of the. Well, there's two things. I mean, perhaps Derridians don't 
help themselves. I mean, right now they're in a very um, strange position with it, with the death of Derrida and um, the. Uh, I think anyone. I never met Derrida. I never was in his presence. And I think anyone who was in his presence um, knows things that the rest of us don't, which is the you know staggering charisma of him and the um, the absolute um, the mind that just would not let up forever. So, so um, as well as the sort of you know tremendous um, humanity and kindness of, of him, so I think I think he was an extremely seductive um, figure. And for those who knew him, um, they're in the position really of, of the Freudians. You know, once Freud is dead, are you going to um, keep? trying to be as close to Freud, and, and that, that would then be what psychoanalysis is, what Freud himself might have endorsed, or are you going to actually allow the school of Freud to develop into object relations or wh wherever else you might want it to go? And um, I mean, even when Freud's alive, that's a problem. He needs, he needs dis disciples, and he can't bear to have disciples because they necessarily will be thinking their own thoughts, which may not be um, coming from the fount. I, I think Derrida was, you know, really generous. I, I, I'm often reading um, things by people who knew Derrida, and, and um, to my mind, they're slightly, slightly off. You know, slightly taking one, slightly one cog out of true. And um, but he himself, I think, was just very um, encouraging of, of, of um, you know, people who wanted to work in in his penumbra. It, it's, it reminds me of that. I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but um, no, I don't think it is because I think Engels actually said that Marx once said in response to some of his followers, if, if what you stand for is Marxism, then I myself am not a Marxist. <laughs> I mean, there's that, that must be true of Derrida, although as you say, um, it, uh, he likely was, obviously, I, I, I've, I've only read interviews and things like this, but he would have been generous with people taking his thought and running with it. Yeah. Do you take a position on, would you, would you characterize yourself as a Derrida purist? Or do you, uh, do you glory in all the ways people have made use of and perhaps deliberately misread and creatively misread Derrida? Do you think of yourself as a creative misreader of Derrida? Well, I'm, I, I'm actually, I would say I'm a purist in that I can't stand it when other people do that. <laughs> um, but I myself am, of course, um, a, uh, a creative misreader. Right. And um, I'm, I'm trained as a Renaissancist. And um, my first book sort of got me associated with uh, history of the book um, as, as it manifests itself in Renaissance studies. Uh, it, was, it was actually about graffiti and it had quite a lot of Derrida and Lacan in it but, but it was basically arguing for the importance of the fact that um, in early modern England where there's not much paper around, I mean there is but the, we are paper short, um, the, the primary place to write would have been on the wall and it, all kinds of things follow from that you know that there's, there's no longer the page which is articulating textual units there's no longer the book you know it, it, so that that's that that led me to be associated with with a kind of you know so-called new materiality in um in renaissance studies um which i um have uh, I, you know I, I owe so much to but i've also got strong reservations about it because i think that um everything i know from reading derrida suggests that this question of materiality is never 
going to be resolved. I mean, I used to worry and worry, what is materiality? Everybody seems to know. I haven't read enough Marx. I haven't read enough <laughs> whatever thing theory. And, and I have now, you know, read these things. And I am none the wiser in that, you know, materiality can be both, you know, that which you can actually touch and, and that which you precisely cannot touch or see, but is, you know, governing the production of various whatever social relations and, and material effects. So, um, so this whole, you know, new materiality history, the book thing, um, is is uh, for me uh, is is a way of not thinking hard and as hard as can be thought about about um, various things. So, grammatology, which um, you know, is not being properly read to my mind by the English speaking community um, because of two reasons. One, it, that, I mean, the, the single reason is that they can only access it through Gayatri Spivak's translation. And the, there are two problems there. One is that the um, translation itself is extremely, um, is full of errors. It's uh, idiomatic in bizarre ways. It often misses the point, and, and it has never been properly corrected. Um, but that's, you know, I, when she did it, it was extraordinary achievement because it was, um, you know, was, uh, Gayatri Spivak was a graduate student at the time, and nobody in the English-speaking world really knew what Derrida was. And so, you know, to, to be able to translate it at all was pretty impressive. However, um, the introduction that she wrote is even more impressive and um, sort of foresees and actually produces the Yale School of Deconstruction. She, she reads, she's reading grammatology and, 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 uh, and a few other cognate things by Derrida and, and sort of anticipating and identifying the gestures of what was going to become the Yale School. Um, but in fact, um, there's so much more in grammatology than that. And, um, and usually people who have read, say they've read grammatology have read the Spivak introduction. So what, to my mind, grammatology is, is as the title suggests, which, you know, de la grammatologie may be, you know, towards grammatology, mm. some grammatology, of grammatology, as the English translation has it. It's this kind of question about could there be a field called grammatology? And were there a field called grammatology? It would be precisely the attention to the question of writing that Derrida um, opens there, um, by which he means you know, not writing in the narrow sense, although of course it involves that, um, but then every um, form of inscription, every form of social distinction, and then beyond that, um, you know, every manifestation, really, of life. So that Derrida would be, um, you know, he's using cybernetics and microbiology and think, you know, as, as these were bubbling around in the 60s, um, and thinking about um, DNA, for example. You know, there's always already writing for Derrida absolutely everywhere. So my project was to um, try to return to grammatology and, and use what Derrida is thinking there in relation to writing as some kind of um, set of protocols, really, for book, book history. So, um, so within grammatology, Derrida has a few pages where he's imagining the local science of grammatology. In the largest sense, grammatology would be the sort of philosophical inquiry into what this large question of writing means. But at the local level, it would actually have some, it might be a local science that would have a particular set of gestures. And Derrida suggests um, trying to um, think about um, psychoanalytic investments in writing in our, in our culture, 
um, the whole problem of alphabetization and the ways in which when we think about language, we're basing it on a phonetic set of assumptions about, about language. Um, this sort of local, this set of local gestures, the local science of grammatology, Derrida briefly gave a suggested name to, which he called it cultural graphology, and he was just wondering how one might um, dial down the abstract philosophical questions and, and, and think you know, very hard but in local circumstances about the very strange thing that writing is. And, um, and he said, do not try this at home. <laughs> you know, there, there could be no local science of um, grammatology. So my project is to try to think about that grammat cultural graphology. I'm trying to generate that, the, the gestures of that local science. So to answer your question, I'm doing exactly in my book what Derrida said don't do. Right. Not only are you doing what he suggested not to do in a specific sense, which was develop this particular idea, um, you're also, in a way, perhaps being a kind of Derrida purist, and that you're trying to you're 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 following a specific project that he started but didn't develop. Do you feel um, uh, this is, this is a loaded question? Obviously, do you feel like you were successful in the project? What did you find? <laughs> what were your discover what were your discoveries? Yes, well that's interesting. Um the term I, I started to use as I was trying because people would ask me about my relation to Derrida and um and I I thought briefly that the word gleaning would fit the bill nicely because a gleaner is someone who sort of picks up after the harvest what the you know the main harvester has dropped. And um, and I thought yes that fits the bill and then I thought <laughs> actually if you, you know, I started thinking about about the history of gleaning and um, you know in the book of Ruth which is the sort of ur history for us of, of gleaning um, a fantasy because of course gleaning was never really like this um, was uh, that um, uh, Boaz I guess is in the fields and he deliberately drops stuff for her to pick up so then I thought oh this is it's actually getting more complicated here right so does Derrida um, care about what gets left behind? Is he like, deliberately leaving it behind? Um, and so the question of, was I successful? I mean, the, the when I got my readers' reports, um, they fell into two halves. And um, the half that is book history and the half that is reading Derrida. And um, I was expecting, I think, the um, Derridians to be, um, you know, more or less indifferent, but sort of mildly interested in the project, and the book historians to be quite um, aggravated by it, but by the argument that Derrida is a book historian, um, that there's all kinds of things that Derrida can teach us, and that um, book history just cannot go on blithely, naively, you know, pretending it knows what a book is. And in fact, <laughs> the reverse happened. And the book historians um, I've presented to have usually been, um, there have been exceptions, but they've usually been uh, really interested and um, um, grateful to Derrida, I think, for, for, the, for the kinds of prompts to thought that, that um, the project that's cultural graphology would, would um, involve, whereas the Derridians... <laughs> Interestingly, um, uh, much less. Um, I mean, they care less because the real Derridians are um, all French readers. They don't 
really understand what the... Or they hadn't. I mean, I think people now understand what the problem is with the English translation of grammatology, but they hadn't really known that because they all read it in French. So, um, and uh, the Derridians, um who I know, are um, so engaged in adjudicating what the right way of um, remembering and mourning Derrida is, and they're um, a very different um, a set of commitments that uh, that, are, that are quite exigent on them. You know, they, they really they really have to to work out you know what they're going to do with Derrida's legacy. And since um, you know so many of them were his friends and his students, and it's a very um, very poignant years still I think they're still they're still deeply missing missing him so. you you said with few exceptions the book historians were or the Derrid I, I think you said with with a few ex exceptions the book <laughs> historians were interested in the project I mean I guess it makes sense that uh, that you were initially um, worried about it because it sounds like one of the questions you're asking or one of the premises you have with the project um, is is uh, the question can we know what a book is and that would be very frustrating for a book historian who probably does have to take as her premise, I know what a book is. Yes. Um, uh, could you just describe what were some of the arguments against it? Yes, well, you're exactly right. So I think, I think one of the great things, I always tell my students this, you know, the, what you will know at the end of a class with me on Derrida is um, less than you come in knowing. And of course, they always look a bit uncomfortable at this. And um, but what I mean by that is that you know they come in thinking they know what a book is, what nature is, what paper is, and you can just show how um, these things are um, contingent formations. And 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 actually, to break them down is to liberate thought. Um, it's, it's extremely interesting to realise that. Um, the book is a, is a, and of course there are such things in our world as books, but it's not the the book is not you know the manifestation within hard covers of some kind of ideal form at the end of a of a, of a as as intended by the author. And of course, you know, book historians know this. Anyone who's edited Shakespeare knows that there is no getting back to Shakespeare's original intention. They know that um, the notion of the author is, you know, a figment which we're using to um, control a kind of set of possibilities about what this text may or may not have been, what it may or may not have meant in its moment of its production, which will always be a ragged one, you know, did, as the author first thought, as the author first drafted, as the author corrected his own manuscript. You know, I, I like to run this with my MA students, if, if we discovered that Shakespeare had, in his old age, corrected a version of Romeo and Juliet, which would be the true Shakespeare, the one, the outpouring of the young man in love, or the, you know, the old guy thinking, no, no. Um, so, you know, at what point would one begin to believe that one knew what one was trying to stabilize? So the point is that um, there's a lot of... Um, um, of uh, of conversation to be had that is that that is based on similar assumptions between you know hardcore textual critics and um, and Derrida and and you know Derrida knows this in, in his he's always writing about texts and books and um, the question of what paper is the question of you know the codex various formats he's he, from the beginning he was thinking about these questions and he went on with them to the end of his life. That was Juliet Fleming. 
Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Kadar Jabbar and I edit the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual Progressive Conservative Conference challenges leading thinkers on the left and right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference on the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called the flyover country. And of course, the Howenstein Center is itself a center for presidential studies. It's been quite a time for the presidency. To learn more about our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at Joe Hogan CGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan. This has been Common Ground.